HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Good morning and welcome to Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, We have a really interesting show, a show that uh, sort of happened by itself. I I was reading uh, Bill Marler, my guest last week's uh, wonderful journal, um, Food Safety Journal. It's an online journal, and I recommend it highly. And uh, one article in particular caught my eye about nanoparticles and nanoparticles in our food and nanoparticles in food packaging. And I was sufficiently moved by this article to then follow up and uh, find the two people who were quoted in the article. Um, and they are my guests today. Um, the first one is Michael Passoff. Uh, Michael is a senior strategist on environmental health issues for an organization called As You Sow. It's a nonprofit Uh, that promotes environmental and social corporate responsibility through shareholder advocacy, coalition building, and innovative legal strategies. My other guest is Dr. Jennifer Sass. Dr. Sass is a senior scientist in the Health and Environment Program of the Natural Natural Resources Defense Council, otherwise known as NRDC, which is, again, an an environmental nonprofit organization. She's an expert in U.S. chemical policy and regulations. Dr. Sass has degrees in anatomy and cell biology from the University of Saskatchewan, Canada, and toxicology from the University of Maryland. Welcome to both of my guests who are on the phone today. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your Sunday. I really appreciate it. Um, So I think we should uh, start, I guess let's start with Michael. Can you, I I found your uh, organization particularly perplexing. I didn't really quite completely understand 
um, how As You Sow works um, promoting environmental and social corporate responsibility through shareholder advocacy. I thought that was a really interesting idea. So um, can you tell us a little bit about As You Sow and what you actually do there? Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for having us on. I, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you and your audience. Oh, good. Um, As You Sow is based in San Francisco. It's been around for about 15 years and it's a very unique nonprofit in that it uses a few different um, tactics to to make companies um, improve their environmental and social performance. We do litigation on toxic issues in California, mm-hmm. and the money that uh, comes out of that we then grant out. So we're also a grant maker for issues on toxics in California, and we also do shareholder advocacy, which means we go out uh, to investors in a company. And we, we raise an issue with a company, uh, again, in this case on food, and if we don't get the response we want from the company, we go to all their shareholders and we raise the issue with them. And we build up pressure among the shareholders and file things like uh, shareholder resolutions that get voted on every year at the annual meeting mm-hmm. and really just try to use that financial leverage uh, to move the company in a certain direction. Fascinating. Absolutely wonderful. I had no idea any such organization existed, and it's a real, it's a comfort to know that you're out there. Um, so um, why don't we start off with, um, Jennifer, I think this question is for you, really, because as Michael pointed out, he's not so much the science side of it as he is the sort of corporate side of things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about nanotechnology and uh, and then I'd like both of you to respond to the, why your organizations, the NRDC or, as you so, got interested in nanoparticles particularly. Um, sure. Um, so nanotechnology um, is really the technology of engineering chemicals or nanochem- at the nanoscale. So they become nanochemicals or nanomaterials. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't have to be just chemical, but... Primarily for the time being, um, it is mainly chemicals off your periodic table um, from your old chemistry class that have been intentionally engineered um, so that at the nanoscale, their properties change, their physical properties. It, it might be, they might actually be a different color. They might um, conduct um, electricity, whereas before they didn't, um, or they might um, have other important properties. And engineers can take advantage of those properties when they engineer them. Um, But one thing that happens when you change the physical properties of a material, then you're probably also changing the toxicology of that material, Mm -hmm. partly because of the small size. Its toxicology may change, and partly because of its altered properties. What is uh, nanotech... Well, since we're talking about food, and and what what is nanotechnology or nanoparticles in food? What What do they use them for? Why do we um, have well, that? Mostly the, um, I'm going to let Michael um, answer as well, because, of course, Good. this is an, an important part of the report that his organization has released. Mm-hmm. Um, but primarily, um, the nanomaterials are being used in food packaging right now. Um, nanosilver is um, a prevalent one that's used as an antimicrobial in food packaging with the idea that it would keep the food from spoiling. Um, but ha- what happens when it gets into the food and when we ingest it is really um, untested at this point. And Michael, what did what was your why did you want to get involved in this? Why was your organization interested in in something like um, you know nanoparticles of silver in food packaging? Well, we just started uh, reading about it in the press. We kept reading these articles that nano is all 
in the food supply already mm-hmm. um, and didn't really see it listed anywhere. And, and we had uh, dealt with companies years ago on the GMO issue. Right. And we're wondering if we're having a similar issue where there's a new technology that's out there, it's not well tested, it's probably already in the food supply. So we tried to find out. So, we, so our concern uh, was that it was in the food supply and no one knew. And as we started to look into it, one of the things we found was that the, the FDA's existing regulations do not require nanotech and food to be tested if they are created from uh, existing approved chemicals. So as, as Jen says, you know, the FDA says silver is silver, but silver is not silver once it's at its nanoscale. Mm-hmm. It can act very differently. So it wasn't being tested um, for impacts on, on people in the environment. And we found it, it was listed at least on a lot of issues. Uh, the packaging, you know, that looks like that's where a lot of interest is going. Also, food itself, just for coloring, for flavoring, for nutritional supplements. Uh, agriculture as new pesticides for identity preservation, as sensors to monitor soil conditions. So there is a lot of applications being uh, looked at, trying to be developed. But as far as we can tell, there's no uh, real testing on this or, very, or nothing that's transparent. Um, and the FDA doesn't require it to be uh, labeled or identified in any way. So it's just, I think it's just labeled as what they call G-R-E-A-S, which is general um, grass, general, I don't know, you guys know what it is, general something, but it's approval for safety or something like that. It's an FDA, um, mech, or, you know, yeah, terminology that they use when it's, they don't really know what something is or they don't, but they haven't decided, they haven't tested it. They just have assumed that it's generally safe for human consumption. And that's apparently what nanoparticles are, is they've been given that designation. So, um, so Jen, what, I mean, it's in food, it's in packaging. Um, Some of the, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here and say, um, a lot of the industry suggests that, that this technology will have a really super positive impact on food safety. Because, for instance, as you just mentioned, uh, Michael, you know, the antimicrobial properties of silver in packaging, um, or they're trying to develop, uh, say, a plastic film or plastic packaging that will be able to sense when food spoils. I imagine this would be very popular in the meat industry. Um, you know, things like that. Why would that be bad? Is it, I mean, is it all given that the, that the particles are become toxic at the nano level, or, or we just don't know, and that's why it's a bad idea? Um. This is. I just want to clarify for a minute the, the grass issue with FDA. Yeah. Um, you're, you're referring to GRAS, generally regarded as, as safe. safe. Yes, that's what. That's and what and I was this is for. for things ranging from you know lemon oil and cinnamon sometimes to I, um, I'm not sure what's on the list, but um, the ones I've seen I, I don't know the whole list. I don't, but but it, it ranges for things like garlic and um, th- a lot of things that are generally regarded as safe, but there's other things on that list, actually, that really have been poorly tested. Um, And also, the real issue is that companies can self-declare things are grass. So actually, FDA doesn't even have a complete list of things in um, food and food packaging that the companies themselves consider grass but haven't actually um, declared or disclosed it to FDA. But, But just to clarify that nanomaterials are not considered grass by FDA, that it's more, it's not that FDA is generally regarding them as safe, it's more that FDA is generally regarding them as like their normal scale chemical. So they're considering that nanosilver would be like silver, um, and that we know that isn't the case. We know that nanosilver is much more toxic. 
And um, and that's because it's so much smaller. And oh, well, the thing that, okay, let me backtrack a little bit. Actually, you know what? Let's take like a 10 second break while I pull myself together here, because I really do have like some very particular questions, for, especially for you, Jennifer, about why we should be concerned as consumers about this technology. So we'll be right back. Stay on the line. We're back on Straight No Chaser. This is Katie Kiefer, your host. We're broadcasting on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. My topic today is nanoparticles in the food chain, and my guests are Michael Passoff from As You Sow and Dr. Jennifer Sass from the National Resources, uh, sorry, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you, by the way, for that email, Jennifer. That was very nice of you. Um, so anyway, let me get right down to basics here. What, how, why is it that we should be concerned about this? Because the thing that caught my eye in the article I read on Bill Marler's thing is that these can pass through the blood-brain barrier or into our organs. So let's unpack that for a minute, like how this stuff works. Like, okay, silver changes its quality in a nano form, and then what would happen? It would go into our brain, into our liver. Why should we be worried about this? Um, so it's very hard to make a sweeping statement about all nanomaterials, just the way it's impossible to make a sweeping statement about all chemicals in general. Um, so the real issue, as Michael pointed out, and, and Michael's report really hits on the crux of this, um, is that they're untested. Mm-hmm. But what we do know about some of the nanomaterials that have been tested is that because of their small size, um, they seem to be able to get into the bloodstream, pass through tissues, and get into the bloodstream quite rapidly. And then in the bloodstream, they circulate throughout the body. They can go to different organs. Mm-hmm. And some of them that have been tested also have been shown to be able to pass through the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. And it's likely that nanosilver is one of those. Well, that's a very disturbing thought. <laughs> It's very concerning because um, whereas silver is actually relatively um, non-toxic to humans, Mm. um, and in fact, while I advise strongly against this, um, some people even ingest silver on purpose, thinking that it'll keep them germ-free. Um, and they turn like a sort of a grayish, bluish hue. When oh, my happens. God, that is terrifying. It's not a very good idea, and I'm advising strongly against it. But my point is that it's not really highly toxic to humans when ingested. But the thing about nanosilver that's different is that at the nanoscale, um, the silver releases these little ions, and they release them. These ions are very um, highly chemically reactive. It's the really toxic part. And because the little nanosilver can get into these small crevices and cells and small spaces, and then it releases these little ions, it may cause a very localized but very high toxicity. Um, Uh And because it kills things like bacteria, we know it may also kill all sorts of important things in our cells, Um, like, for instance, mitochondria are derived from bacteria, and they're the powerhouse or energy of a cell. Um, So all this is untested and and unshown, but um, certainly raises a lot of red flags. I hope so. <laughs> and Michael, when you talk to um, some of the corporations that you work with, and that includes McDonald's, they had quite a strong reaction to this. Um, General Foods, Kraft, um, what's their response? Do they? Why don't they know, first of all, that there's nanotechnology or nanoparticles being used in their packaging? Why would they not know that? 
for instance? Well, uh, they may not know because it can come in further down their supply chain. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're McDonald's, you know, you, you get all your potatoes from one you know, place. You, get, you have your meat from certain people you work with. But you may be selling other things like Coca-Cola or something else, and there may be something in that supply chain that goes further down um, that you don't know what would be in. And so we had to ask uh, the companies. And, and if there's good news here is that a lot of the companies shared our concern. And, and again, I've been dealing with companies on food safety issues for more than a decade, so I've gone through issues like uh, genetically engineered foods, bisphenol A and plastic and bottles. Um, and there's a different reaction to the companies we spoke to. And we spoke to five very large, you know, iconic companies. We spoke to McDonald's and Kraft. Yum, which is uh, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut and Long John Silver and a bunch of other fast food chains, uh, Pepsi and um, Whole Foods. And what we heard from all of them was really a precautionary approach. Uh, so that was really reassuring. And, um, and uh, for at least four of them, they had to go back to their supply chain and check. So they all said, oh, we don't think we're using it, but you know, we didn't quite know. So McDonald's, for instance, went back um, and talk to its main suppliers, and we set up a, a expert briefing for the company, um, and it came out with a policy, which is on its website, which basically says, you know, we're, we're following the technology. We don't know if we'll use it or not in the future, but right now, you know, we are not going to use nano and food or food packaging until they prove it's safe. And that's a different approach than, than they've taken on issues um, and products in the past. Often, as long as it's legal, companies, food companies have felt it's okay to use it. Uh, nano in food is legal, but here you have some of the biggest companies that are really kind of taking a precautionary approach. And that's why we came out with the framework, because there's a lot of companies out there, and it's really just the questions, are we using it, how do we know, and what questions do we have to be asking our suppliers and the manufacturers of the products we use if it's safe? Have they done all the safety testing? Is it transparent? Um, because no one else is requiring that. So it's, it almost becomes incumbent on the companies themselves to require that from their manufacturers and from their supply chain. But doesn't that go back to the, co- the question of self-policing and how that's maybe not the most effective way of determining whether or not something is safe? Or should we ascribe better motivations to our um, large food corporations, which in the past have not always had the consumer's best interest at heart? Well, that's where I'm saying it's different. And I wouldn't say they don't have consumers' best interest at heart. I I think they would disagree with that and say they do. I'm sure you're Um, right. I think, uh, again, if something's legal, they feel they're allowed to use it. And because they often feel that the government and the regulatory agencies have done due diligence and have made sure there's uh, safety testing, and that's just not the case. That hasn't been the case in in, many products coming out, but uh, particularly on nano. That's not the case. So, yes, right now it is a um, situation of self-policing. That's not the best. I actually think that many food companies would like to see the regulatory agencies involved so they have some real clarification on this issue. But at least on this issue, from those companies that we've talked to, um, they are taking a precautionary approach, which is, again, seems to be different than how the food industry reacted to GMOs or other issues in the past. And just to branch off for a second about GMOs, I mean, has there, Jennifer, you could probably answer this question maybe even better than Michael is, I mean, what what studies have come out that show that GMO uh, products or GMO um, grains are in fact a danger to public health? 
Have there been um, any, or is it still pretty much speculation? I'm going to let Michael answer that one. Since okay. He's been working on that for decades, so he's the expert. Cool. Go for it, Michael. Well, I, I think there are a number of uh, studies. The Institute in Responsible Technology in Iowa has come out with another studies uh, related to health. Um, it, the, the science is much clearer on the environmental impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the things that critics... Um, predicted, you know, a decade ago have come to pass. There's been a whole growth of uh, uh, super pests that are resistant to GMOs um, and to super weeds that now require more and, and, and worse pesticides to try to kill them off. Yes. So that was the concern. So I think for the environmentally, there's clearly uh, been uh, all the concerns, you know, have been uh, coming uh, to pass. And uh, again, there's been a number of issues as far as um, allergies, and also it links to much more serious diseases, but there's not a lot of money going into testing. But um, the Institute for Responsible Technology in Iowa uh, tends to be the best tracker of that information. Fascinating. Um, well, maybe we'll do a show about that another time, because, I'm, I, you know, you hear so many conflicting opinions about that. And uh, on the one hand, it's, you know, GMOs are producing, you know, enormous crop yields on land and so forth and so on. And then on the well, other Well, they're not hand, anymore. You know, Really? But the crop yields are, are dropping quite uh, significantly. The crop How's... yields are dropping, and they're creating a lot of pesticide resistance. So in right. many of the most important crops, are actually increasing the amount of pesticides being used. Yes, I've read that also. Yeah, same, that the super weeds and super bugs and, you know, all the things that they were meant to um, sort of eradicate or, or make or render null and void have become actually much more um, costly in that sense. Um to go back to nanotechnology, though, how, if the FDA, what, you know, why, why aren't they testing this? Like, I don't get, they don't have enough money, they don't have enough staff. I mean, if these, if these particles um, have the potential to do what Jennifer explained they can do, which is change properties and pass through the blood-brain barrier, just for a couple examples, why isn't the FDA or why isn't the government stepping in and becoming more concerned about this as a consumer health issue? Um, I think that the government is very concerned about this, and I think where they're sort of tied up with hand-wringing um, is in trying to come up with some um, basic administrative things that they want to get done first before they require testing. Like, for example, they want to have a clear definition of a nanomaterial. Um, and um, number two, they want to have um, very clear um, pre-agreed to or pre-validated tests that are um, appropriate for um, catching all the potential toxicity that, nan- that might arise in the nanomaterial. Uh, um, and they want to work in an international realm, so they're working at the OECD or the international cl- um, country collaboration level as well as with Europe. Um, but my opinion, and um, I'd like to hear Michael too on this, um, is that while all this should be happening, it shouldn't be an excuse to not actually require nanomaterials to go through the basic tests now. Um, so um, just get some basic toxicity testing would be really critical. Or if you're not going to test them and assess them properly, then certainly don't put them in our food and food packaging. Absolutely. Michael, what's your take on that? Um, I would agree with that, but I'm also a little more cynical about the political process. I, you know, I think the regulatory agencies have been very dominated by the food industry with mm-hmm. a revolving door. Um, I think they haven't necessarily been very consumer friendly. There's, you know, the, they tend to favor the industry and, and um, letting it do what it wants. I think most of the regulatory agencies have had their funding cut off, so it's been very hard for them to um, do research or to follow up on it. Um, 
or to just put the time into setting standards and, and requiring uh, items from the companies. So I, I think there's a real political element here as well that um, for years, uh, you know, Congress has just been uh, depowering regulatory agencies. Um, and there's also just the, the whole nature of the beast in that you have emerging technologies that move very fast and you have a government that moves very slowly. So it's always lagging behind these new emerging technologies. Yeah, well, that was, that was sort of what I was pointing at when I was saying that it's not always in the consumer's best interest. In other words, technology is adopted before it is um, completely and fully vetted by any regulatory agency, and that you know, and it is almost always in the in favor of whatever company it is that's going to stand to make the most money off of it. So that that was kind of what I was implying um, earlier in the show. But uh, I want to reintroduce you guys for people who are just turning in. I don't want to take a break because I think this is too interesting. Um, but my guests today are. Um, um, Michael Passoff from As You So and Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Sass from the um, National Res- Natural Resources Defense Council. Boy, it's weird how your brain gets into those pathways. Maybe a little shock treatment. Um, anyway, so let's keep going with this because um, when the food industry is, I mean, I guess what we want to talk about now is more about the political aspect of this. And when you, Michael, when you deal with companies like um, McDonald's and Kraft and so forth, and, and you said earlier that they were, you know, sort of anxious probably to have some sort of regulatory board, um, you know, advise them on this, um, that does imply a much, <clears throat> excuse me, a much more consumer friendly attitude towards the technology than I would expect. But so then let's go back to where these nanoparticles are, are being injected into the food system. And it's not at the, at the level where you're making hamburger patties. So where, you know, it's the packaging, it's, it's in flour bins. It's, you know, where do you start with this? Where do you start breaking it down so that you can stop it, uh, you know, before it goes further down the food chain, as it were? Well, I think right now the, the initial interest seems to be in packaging. I mean, I think it will get into all different aspects. And again, you know, they're, they're saying there's going to be many beneficial, beneficial um, uh, results from this. Yeah. And, you know, there very may well be. This is uh, like any new technology has potentials and pitfalls, and, and every new technology has a lot of benefits. The question is, does it get rolled out too soon that you have a higher level of of uh, pitfalls and problems for the people, and especially on an issue like nano and food. You know, we're not talking about using nanomaterials to improve car bumpers or something. You're talking right. about something that people are going to eat and they're going to ingest and it's going to be in their body. So I think there needs to be a higher uh, a standard of oversight for this. Um, what so about in I, the soil, though? I mean, like, that scared me when you said that. That nanotechnology could go into soil, and then I mean, and then and then it presumably, Jennifer, you can answer this. I mean, then it presumably is go- penetrating the cell structure of whatever plant or animal is either feeding off of the soil in the form of grass, or actually, you know, growing in that in that soil. Do you- yeah, I mean, all those are really good guesses, and those are the kinds of things that we should be testing before we use it. Yeah, in ways like that, but but the scientific answer is we just don't know. Right, it's not tested. I mean, you'd think farmers would be really up in arms about this, like in the sense that, yes, maybe it would help their crops grow better. I don't know. I mean, I assume that's what it would be for. But at the same time, wouldn't they be scared to death of of what that would be doing to their soil chemistry? Well, I mean, the, the Environmental Protection Agency is already getting letters um, from water treatment facilities. They're very concerned that the nanosilver used in textiles and clothing and Ooh. being sold 
um, to consumers is, is washing out and is ending up in the wastewater, which is going to actually kill or harm the beneficial bacteria that they require in their systems to treat sewage. So they're afraid that the consumer nanosilver will impair their ability to treat sewage properly. Jiminy, there's just no end. I mean, you follow this stuff down the path long enough, and the next thing you know, I mean, <laughs> don't breathe the water, don't drink the air. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing employment project. For yeah, like it sounds Michael great for you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I only wish we could all be that lucky. Um, <laughs> well, I guess we only have a couple minutes left, so can we? Um, can both of you just uh, say a little more about your organizations, where you can be found, where people can find more information about this topic, so if they want to follow up, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, Jennifer, why don't you start? Tell us, yeah, I mean, the National Natural Resources Defense Council doesn't really need much of a, of a, of a plug, but, um, you know, tell us what you guys have published about this and, and where people can read more information. Um, sure, there's a couple of um, good places. There's some um, advocacy groups like mine at nrdc.org and also Friends of the Earth, um, USA and Australia have put out a number of good reports aimed specifically at consumers, including one on nano and food, mm-hmm. as well, and nano and cosmetics. Um, and so their website is worth looking at. Yeah, that's got to be a scary thing, nano and cosmetics. Mm-hmm. You're just like absorbing it right through your skin into your bloodstream. Right on, right on your skin. Um, <gasps> and then um, the agencies also have some information on both the European Union um, mm-hmm. As well, um, Germany has put out some good precautionary reports on nanomaterials, um, and the European Union also has some advocacy groups that are following this very closely. And the Europeans have been much slower to adopt this technology, or are they full speed ahead like we are? Wow. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's, not, it's similar. Michael, really? what do you think? Yeah, everything I hear from uh, Europe is that it's a similar stage. Huh, because they were so resistant to GMOs. I mean, they really took... Uh took their time about that, although I read recently that France has just adopted GMO corn, I think. Yeah, well, you know, they weren't the European Union then either. Right. So there was a couple of countries that um, drew a line in the sand on GMOs, but now the European Union is much larger and more bureaucratic. And right. Ger- Germany has, um, like I say, taken quite a precautionary approach and some other countries as well, but... Um, I feel like the European Union is going through the same slow, laborious process of coming up with definitions and validated tests. Yeah, incredible. I, you know, it just blows my mind that uh, this kind of technology can be adopted so readily into manufacturing processes and yet no no real understanding of how it works or its, its yeah. impact down the road. And Michael- I mean, the outrageous thing is every single scientist you'll talk to will tell you without a doubt that nanomaterials are different than the normal materials. Nanosilver is different than silver. Nanocarbon tubes are different than carbon. Every single scientist will tell you that, and yet the federal agencies aren't really testing it that way. Wow. I don't get it. And what about the union? Isn't there a concerned scientists? Uh, what is it called? The Union for Concerned Scientists? or the There's a, or there's a sort of a the watchdog group. Union for Concerned Scientists. There's also the Consumers Union, yeah. uh, which is very active. Oh, they've on, actually on been very active issues. about this, yeah. Yep. Consumers yeah. Union has been very active, and a group called... Um, ICTA, um, International Center for Trade Assessment, has been very active. And also um, there's a group called ETC Group that has also been active on the international scale on this. Huh. 
Well, that's that's encouraging, at least. And Michael, um, we do have to go now. So tell me, uh, just let people know where they can find asyouso.org, right? And that's right. Asyouso.org is so is S-O-W. Right. And, um, and again, we just put out the sourcing framework for food and food packaging uh, for products containing nanomaterials and uh, really just to help the... Uh, the industry start to address the unknown risk to environment and public health and to get a better understanding of what it is before it goes into the food supply. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm trembling. I really am. I'm, I'm never going to eat another thing. I, I'm going to subsist on like, you know, gelatin pills for the rest of my life. <laughs> and no more makeup, by the way. Anyway, I want to thank you both very, very much for being on the show today. This was like such a hard topic for me. I really am such a non-science person, but I, I felt like this was this is one of those things that I feel like is really going to blow up in the news in the next six months to 12 months. I just think that it's kind of crazy that these products are being introduced into so many aspects of our lives without any real rigorous due diligence about you know their, their impact down the road. So um, Michael Passoff, thank you so much. Dr. Sass, thank you. And uh, I hope we can connect again. Michael, I'd love to do a show on fracking with you because we're you know that's a big deal here in new york and uh thanks to jack and thanks to all my listeners this has been straight no chaser on heritageradionetwork.com you can find us on archives or on itunes and uh we'll see you next week with um sam fromarts from choose wise blog so long folks thanks for listening to this program on the heritage radio network You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.